know your trees and nothing old. Can't harvest is surely come. A dry summer didn't come before. Welcome to WPKN's Organic Farm Stand, which comes to you the first and third Thursday of each month. My name is Richard Hill. Very happy to let you know that we have a great show for you today as we are approximately two and a half weeks away from spring. And uh, it's a pretty uh, acceptable day here for the beginning of March. I mean, uh, we're not dealing with any kind of horrible weather. And I also want to let you know what's going to happen. So in, in a moment, I'm going to bring in Steve Mono, who is the uh, uh, manager of Massaro Farm in Woodbridge, Connecticut. He, of course, is always at our, the top of our show to give us the CSA report. For those of you who don't know what that means, that's a community-supported agriculture, uh, which uh, Massaro Farm is one of the wonderful examples here in Connecticut. So, Steve, are you with us? Yes, glad to be here. Yeah, my pleasure. Um, so, yeah, and then after Steve give his, gives his uh, update, we're going to bring in um, our um, honeybee expert, Vincent Kay, uh, from Swords into Plowshares Honey, and he will be here to tell us what the heck is going on with bees at this stage of the season. And... Uh, you know, he always has wonderful stories and adventures, so we'll, we're going to hear about that at about approximately 12.15. And then we have a special guest at 12.30. We're going to be speaking with Ron Whitehurst, who is uh, runs an insectary, which is uh, produces beneficial insects. That is to say, insects that you can use in your different agricultural or um, environmental situations to combat the pests that tend to destroy the crops or flowers that you're trying to grow. And so he knows all about that stuff. He's going to tell us about it starting at about 1230 today. And um, Steve, what's going on? Yeah, well, I'm very excited that we'll be talking to Ron later. This is a time of year where um, I actually bring in some insects. I just put in uh -huh. a, a, an order for um, some ladybugs. I'm sure lots of folks are, out there are familiar with ladybugs being a, a beneficial insect in their garden. They're something that we want to encourage to have around. Um, but, you know, in our case here on the farm where we've got lots of produce, sometimes we, we, we don't just encourage them. Sometimes we have to bring them in intentionally as well. So um, we're going to get a few thousand ladybugs here that I'll release into our high tunnels where we are growing kale and salad mix and chard but the but the the crop that I'm having them help with is our uh, is our kale which we've been growing uh, all winter long so we, we planted this kale um, 
Some of it was late August, some of it was in September, and, um, you know, they didn't need that protected space for the fall, but then to keep it going over the winter, you know, we have it in the, in, the, in these uh, unheated greenhouses, what we call our high tunnels or hoop houses, and uh, when it gets real cold, we put that frost blanket over it, and then on a day like today where it's sunny, we, we uncover, and they're just growing away. You know, we, we do a, a harvest, you know, every other week, um, so we've got lots of kale, but at this time of year, one of the sort of things we start to see is a pet that comes up there, and those are aphids, uh, little little gray, um, sometimes white. There's, there's all kinds of different aphids, but the aphid that gets on the, the kale is a, is a sort of a gray brassica aphid, and the, the ladybugs will feed on them. So before the aphids become a problem, I want to bring the ladybugs in so that they're ready as soon as those aphids might hatch. So I haven't seen any sign of the aphids yet, but I know each year around mid-March or late March, we start to see it. Um, and so I'm trying to bring the ladybugs in in advance. So I just put in my order and I expect to get uh, some ladybugs next week that we'll release um, into the greenhouse or into those hoop houses. We'll do it a couple times over the next two months. And then likewise for our chard, there's another bug, another pest, um, a little a leaf miner. It does a really, when you look at the leaf, if you've ever seen, you know, a leafy green with a, a trail that looks, uh, looks like a bug kind of mined its way, trail through the through the leaf well that's a leaf miner and there again there's all different kinds of leaf miners but this leaf miner that gets into our chard or our spinach or our beet greens um, we want to use a, a parasitic wasp to get after it so um, I'm, I'm going to be excited to hear from Ron about that but we'll, it'll be another month till we get that um, to get that parasitic wasp in um, so I'm really excited to hear from Ron about that and I just like I said I just put in my ladybug order uh, and I'm thinking about uh, the parasitic wasps as well that'll help with our leaf miner issues so you know that's what that's some of the things on our mind here yeah. um, we've also you know been doing seeding just the, the very first bits of seeding um, getting ready for you know plantings that don't seem too far away anymore now that uh, you know some of that ice and snow has melted away yeah uh, just a, a qu- question uh, off the cuff here what do ladybugs feed on I mean don't they eat uh, some kind of green leafy thing or what do they eat? Yeah, well, they will they will eat on those those little bugs, you know, on on those little aphid bugs, um, or so. The and the aphids will feed on on our greens, and they they right. typically get right at the um, they they like the the new tender new growth. Um, yeah. You know, so the aphids will eat our greens, and then the ladybugs will eat those smaller bugs. Um, yeah. I'm not sure the rest of their diet, but uh, I bet Ron can help us out with that. So they're uh, omnivores, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I believe so. So, you know, there's plenty of bugs uh, and the wasps that out there that are predators. You know, a lot of us might hear wasp and think danger for us, but there's actually lots of wasps who do the predatory work that we need for them in the field. So when we say beneficial insects, some of those beneficial insects are actually sort of predators of other insects that might be pests that we view as pests that can harm our crops. Um, So there's plenty of really beneficial wasps out there, and some of them are so small, you know, you can barely, you can barely see them. Um, You know, they're not the big things that we see flying around and we want to avoid. Uh, But even those big, those bigger wasps can be beneficial as well, even though they might give us a sting that we're not uh, interested in. We want to give them their space. Um, But uh, yeah, these, these are small parasitic wasps and then they're kind of predators out there feeding on smaller insects. So I'll I'll be curious to hear more from Ron about that. Yeah, uh, as well. Um, great stuff, Steve. Tell tell us how we we just went or 
we've just had, I think, CSA week, CSA appreciation week, or whatever you call it. Is that true that that occurred already, or is it upcoming? That's right. Yeah, last week was National CSA Week, and um, so this uh, sort of idea, this is sort of a promotional and celebratory idea, um, sort of marking the time of year throughout the country where there's the the sort of most CSA signups. Now, in New England here, you know, in Connecticut, we we might see a lot more signups later in March. It's the sort of thing where people are are sensing spring is coming, it's getting a little bit warmer, and you get a lot of CSA signups as as people start thinking about that produce that they'll get throughout the summer. Um, but nationwide, you think about the West and the South, uh, you know, their their season is well underway with the planting that, you know, we're a, another month or two away from. So that date, that sort of late February date has become, or time has now become National CSA Week. And we encourage people to sign up for CSAs wherever they are at that time. And, and for our farm at Massaro here, we offered a few special promotions that week and just, just really tried to put out the word and, you know, get people who hadn't uh, signed up uh, yet, you know, who've been our historical subscribers to sign up and to do a little marketing push for, you know, to get in some new subscribers, um, you know, who, who maybe we haven't seen before. And it sort of kicks off a little bit of spring uh, reminders for people that it's not too far away. And that we want to do, you know, the CSA relies on sort of income coming in before the season. I've got a crew here today. You know, my team here is doing some work right now. There's lots of work in advance before we harvest anything. And so rather than, you know, take out a loan from the bank to to fund, you know, our purchases of seeds, you know, our pay for labor, our uh, fertilizer, our soil mix in the greenhouse, all these things that we need to get going, if we can have that investment from the community, um, you know, that'll keep us from from needing to – yeah, deal with loans from the bank and then repayments to the bank. You know, so um, you know the community really can be invested in in a farm, and that's what the CSA is all about: uh, keeping keeping a CSA in your community, keeping a farm in your community, and then sharing in that uh, uh, the reward of the harvest throughout the season. So it did go very well for us. You know, we had a number of people take advantage of of sort of the uh, promotions that we put out there, and um, and we're hoping that it'll it'll spur some more as a good just reminder for people to to sign up soon so that also so once we're real busy out in the field and you know in may and june that that we're not thinking about you know do we need to make any more sales or do we have you know the number of people we expect so i really always appreciate people getting it in early so that we're all set on that admin stuff and marketing stuff um, when we really need to be focused on the fields mm-hmm. and so uh, in the, in the day, what what have you mapped out what your uh, crop uh, spectrum is going to look like this year? I mean, are you adding anything new? Uh, have you made all the decisions yet, or are there still th- some things to be picked or decided? Yeah, there, there's a few new things, uh, some some addition, maybe some subtraction. Um, and there's always, you know, I think one of the things for farmers that we always need to be flexible and resilient because things will come up. So, you know, even if I think I've got it all set now, I've learned over the years that we might actually need to make some changes mid-season, like just like last year having all the rain that we've had, you know, that that shifts plans. Um, sometimes we, you know, a couple of years ago we had 
frost in in mid-May. You know, we had snow and you know two episodes of snow in May, and that kind of shifts what uh, we might have expected. So we've always got to stay on our toes, uh, you know, as farmers, and, and be able to be flexible and make adjustments uh, as the season goes on. But you know, some things we're excited about is is getting a little more, uh, getting a little more focus on our flowers. So it's been years since we we planted any snapdragons. Um, snapdragons are a lovely early season flower, really beautiful and uh, really can make bouquets pop um, and can really be focal points of them. So we've got, um, so that's sort of new. We hadn't done that probably in 10, 10 years. And so excited to bring snapdragons back into the mix for our flowers. Um, so there's, there's a handful of new, new flower varieties like that uh, that we're bringing back into the fold this year as we, we try to give that a little more attention, that aspect of our, of our business and our offering to, to the community. How about uh, greens, vegetables, anything, uh, mustard greens, for example? Which I yeah, about. we've got, you know, there's so many mustard greens out there, and they do really well in this environment. Um, actually, so yesterday, one of, one of my first sort of sowings of the year, I did a, a mustard green mix. So we do that as a salad mix, as kind of a medium spicy salad mix. And, and there's, yeah. you know, uh, 12 or so different mustard greens in that in that mix. And I, I sort of do a, a custom blend of, of green that we've grown to like over the years, these sort of golden frilly um, mustard greens, some purple frilly mustard greens, some uh, red lace mustard greens, some um, some big green uh, in there, some mizuna, some purple mizuna, some tatsoi, um, so it make a nice balanced mix. We even get a little bit of the, the red kale in there. It adds a little sweetness to some uh, balance, some of that spice. So yesterday, yeah, in one of our tunnels that we had previously had some winter lettuce in, we, we had cleared out that lettuce a little while ago, did some prep work, and now we've got you know a bed of salad mix in there, those mustard greens, a uh, bed of arugula in there, and uh, a couple beds of, of radishes. So when we'll have that ready, you know, um, uh, six to eight weeks, depending on, on, on what our temperatures are like, but, the, you know, the, the that protected growing space allows us to do that now without worry of it getting covered in a snowstorm. Uh, so we'll have a pretty reliable harvest in, in April and May of those greens and radishes. Uh, and then we also did our first bit of um, carrots as well. Oh, uh, uh. And so, you know, we hope to have those ready. I always like to have carrots ready in the beginning of the CSA in mid-June. Um, we can't do that if we're sowing them outdoors um, because, you know, carrots are very slow to germinate. Uh, and the and they won't tolerate um, all the bits of rain and snow that we're likely to get over the next six weeks. So by doing it indoors, we get a protected space. Um, we can get a reliable carrot harvest in mid-June. So um, so that's what we're tending to right now. And then a lot of the other work will be in, in the greenhouse and, and then continuing to turn over the other crops we have still growing in our tunnels, like that kale and chard that I mentioned, and still a little bit more of salad mix and arugula that we're finishing up. Yeah, beautiful. Um, what on the fruit side of things? What uh, does Masara Farm do, do about strawberries, blueberries? Uh, uh, what's the other one? Currants or anything of that sort? You- yeah. So strawberries are are the fruit that we spend most of our time on. You know, uh, when you get into organics. 
um, you know, organic fruit is very difficult to do in our area, uh, in this region, a lot of because of moisture and humidity and such. Um, a lot of fruit doesn't like that, and you get mold issues, you get mildew issues. Um, and, of course, there's a whole other aspect of pests that are in, involved as well. But strawberries we can do very well, and they're so – and I love strawberries, and so it was one of the things I committed to right away when I, when I got here uh, at Masaro. And there's very few organic strawberries around. Um, so something that we do, um, we pick and we offer it to our CSA. We'll bring it to the farmer's market. Um, it's a short season for us. We, we do the sort of June-bearing strawberries. Mm. And those are kind of the bigger, plumper strawberries. Those of you who know about uh, ever-bearing strawberries or the... Um, you know, they'll be a little bit smaller and grow a little bit later in the season. Um, wonderful, sweet. Um, well, we don't we don't do those. We'll, we'll have a sort of intense three to four week season where it really dominates our time, picking probably three mornings a week uh, in June, uh, and then and then we're done. And it's a good timing for us because uh, once we're done with that, you know, the CSA we're a few weeks into the CSA. It's a great treat to start the season, and then. We start getting really busy with harvesting uh, cucumbers and squash, which also and summer squash and zucchini, which also take a lot of our time when we probably need to harvest, you know, three mornings a week as well, maybe sometimes four mornings a week. So um, it's a good time for us to do those June berries. Uh, I think you know that they're they're kind of the best around, and then we don't have to worry uh, about you know, any sprays or any pesticides on there. If you get into, if you take a look at those kind of the dirty dozen list of, of things that are most sprayed out there, um, you know, strawberries are among them. And I don't really want to be eating, you know, soft fruit that's in, been sprayed with a pesticide. So and I know a lot of our customers don't want that either. So yeah. I'm very happy to be offering that. That's uh, a serious issue because um, I, I'm not sure if it's evolved, but decades ago I was, I went. I was in San Francisco, and I ran out of money, so I went down to the Salinas Valley, and uh, to do. Somebody told me you could sign on with a vegetable or fruit picking crew, which I did. And my my uh, place was a strawberry picking place, and uh, you know we'd go out at like seven in the morning and pick, you know, all day. And uh, you get paid by the box, and I was of course extremely slow and. In, in racked with pain after about 10 minutes of doing the job because you have to sort of be really low to the ground. But the other thing that was happening was because of the pesticides they were using, and we could see the crop planes flying overhead and dispensing these clouds of insecticide. You know, I, I made the mistake of, of, you know, popping one of those strawberries in my mouth, and I immediately got dizzy. I got I, I, I was I had like a lightheaded feeling. Um yeah, I think that when you said the dirty dozen, uh, the, the, the fruits that you don't want to eat non, uh, non-organic strawberries, and there, there's a few others, because they're porous and fleshy, mm-hmm. the, the insecticide, you know, um, goes in, and it's also on the surface. So that's a um, good, uh, good report on that. Um, yeah. Steve, good I'm, reminder: wash that fruit and and go go organic wherever you can, and especially on those soft fruits like that. Yeah, because I think the problem there is the, the, the pesticide penetrates, mm-hmm. and uh, then you really can't wash it off. You know, so that's right. Yeah, um, it's great to hear that you're producing the organic strawberries. Let's bring uh, Vincent K in. Uh, we're going to find out where he is, but he's always uh, out and about. So, Vincent, thank you so much for being with us today. 
Well, thank you, Richard. Uh, it's uh, it's a cold day still, and um, I am uh, here at home uh, in the honey house, and we have been uh, finishing up processing beeswax, uh, last year's beeswax. We've got about 200 pounds of the most beautiful, pure beeswax you can possibly imagine. It is so yellow and so so perfect. Um, we're very happy with it. Um, the beeswax um, that we produce is from the cappings that we shave off of the combs every year. So it happens that it every year it ends up being um, virgin wax, which is wax that is first-year wax. It's, it's the wax that the bees produce to seal over the honey that they put in the comb. And so every year we shave that off to expose the honey before we put the combs in the large centrifuge to spin out the honey. The combs, of course, get reused every year. So we put those in storage after the bees um, clean them out one last time. But the cappings, the shavings, so to speak, um, get put in buckets. And they're still wet with honey and propolis and what we call clean dirt, piece of wood or a leaf or this or that. But we take that those shavings and we, we store them in buckets until we have the time to deal with it, which is usually January or February. And then we put uh, in production, we have a, a large... Um, electric uh, uh, cauldron, which we boil water in, uh, stainless steel, and it it's holds a lot. Um, and it has an electric element in it, which heats up the water, almost boiling if you so choose, but it heats it up enough. And then we put the cappings in the water. And sure enough, it, it melts the cappings and they separate, the wax separates and floats on top of the water. And then once it comes to a slow rolling boil we open the valves and we we let loose some of the water until we see in the stream um it looks like it's wax uh, and so then we shut it off and we get ready with our buckets and our filters and we actually filter off the wax into five gallon buckets and we have these huge chunks of wax now um, outside being cleaned up by the rain and snow and it's so interesting every year the neighbors and some of the, the, I guess, maybe some of the students that are in the neighborhood, they don't know what to make of all this going on. But they always think that we're making cheese or something because it's, <laughs> it's still bright yellow in color, which, um, of course, as I've talked about in the past on your show, Richard, um, when beeswax is first produced by the, the honeybee, it's snow white. It's as white as white can be. Huh. And it just turns um, yellow from the pollen and the pigment in the pollen on the bee's legs as they walk over it, bringing the pollen back to put in the combs for food. So that's what gives it its beautiful yellow color. And so we, we've just finished um, our last batches of wax, and uh, we're starting to, uh, it, it always happens, we're, we're making the rounds with one bee or, or another, and um, we happened to be in, in uh, Guilford the other day, and some friends of ours out there are doing uh, maple syrup, and, of course, they're sugaring, um, and they've got a beautiful new sugar shack and an evaporator and all of that. And uh, we also keep bees about 100 yards from where they're doing this. And it was a warm day, and the, the honeybees realized, oh, what is this sweet, beautiful sap that's being rendered down into syrup? <laughs> so they were, like, hovering all inside the uh, maple syrup shack and somewhat being a pest and somewhat being just, you know, kind of wonderful to, to see that, you know, nature was coming out, even on a... Huh. Uh, a warm day, still winter. Um, but it, it's so interesting to hear about the greenhouses and the high tunnels because these these uh, uh, insects that are being introduced to those those locations, those environments, are so important 
And so many chemicals are in, involved in our environment, um, whether we like it or not. It's, it's, uh, it's sad to see, but we don't have enough um, insects to take care of uh, uh, the problem of, of things like aphids and whatnot. And so whenever I get a chance, I always like to say, leave the wasps and the hornets alone in the summer unless they're extremely in your way. And uh, because they have a job to do, and, and especially in an organic environment like uh, the Masaro farm, uh, you know, it's, it's a very delicate web. And the honeybees also play a part um, of that web in pollinating fruits and vegetables. But it only takes a little bit of chemical on somebody's lawn to wreck it, to bring it to a total um, exact halt. And then people would say, well, we don't have honeybees this year. Our fruit trees didn't do well because there were no honeybees. And I said, well, it's not just the honeybee. It's a lot of things that are not available because of our environment and, and the pesticides that are being sprayed. Uh, but especially the American lawn really needs to be challenged. I think back in the same way to my grandfather, who uh, lived in Bridgeport and Fairfield, and he ran uh, Brook Lawn Conservatories, which was huge, huge greenhouse operations uh, in on the Bridgeport-Fairfield line. And as children, my sister and I would... Um, would love to go there because, of course, he had alligators to uh, keep the rodent population down. So he had these small alligators um, that, you know, actually turned into fairly large-scale um, <laughs> reptiles. And we would, like, throw rocks at them and, you know, kind of dirt bombs and, you know, get them to chase us around. And you know, we were always breaking a window or two, and he would just, like, shriek and just chase us. <laughs> so it's kind of interesting, but I guess that's up the, the – uh, the line of uh, sustainability as far as, you know, <laughs> what an alligator will take care of in a greenhouse, but certainly um, we're probably rodents. I can't quite remember, but I think that's what he told us as kids. That's but, a... um, all these, this chain of um, uh, the food chain becomes an interesting um, predator control without chemicals, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, right now, getting back to honeybees, um, it's, it's so interesting because the hive that has survived the winter has changed now to reproducing um, honeybees for itself to sustain itself, to sustain warmth and to tend the young larva that the queen is really starting to rock and roll. Now she's laying a lot more eggs. Therefore they have to keep that nest a lot warmer. So usually it's anywhere from 85 to 95 degrees at the center of that nest, even in this weather outside at the center of that nest where she's laying eggs um, without being capped over those, those new, uh, larvae are being uh, kept warm by other bees and the heat that they um, are creating by consuming honey. So for beekeepers out there, you really need to check to make sure the weight of your hives is heavy, which means that there's enough honey in the hives. And please make sure of that because they can go through a lot of food in a short amount of time. The other thing that's looking for a place to nest are mice and rodents. Um, this you should have uh, rodent guards on the front of your hives at the entrances where the bees come and go. It's basically just a piece of wood that reduces the size of the entrance so the mice can't get inside the hive. It's so simple and so preventable. And once the mice are in there, usually the hive dies just because of this, the mice just chew everything to shreds and disrupt everything. And the bees just really can't form a cluster to keep those eggs warm. So those are a couple things to do. And um, uh, pretty much uh, don't open it unless the hive, that is, unless you really need to. 
Um, but certainly if you need to feed that hive, get going and, and put some sugar syrup or even some dried uh, fondant. Fondant is um, sort of the icing on cakes that they used to make with um, with uh, powdered sugar, water, and uh, cream of tartar. Huh. And you can make kind of a dry block of, of uh, sugar slash cake in which um, will give the bees some kind of nutrients and carbohydrates to keep them alive at a very crucial time. Uh, we're not really uh, expecting dandelions probably for another month, uh, usually the beginning of uh, April, mid, mid-April, depending on the weather, you'll start seeing those dandelions. Um, so that's the real uh, source of food for the bees, uh, excess source of food, where the bees can kind of relax a little bit and, uh, and uh, tend to other chores besides just uh, the basics. Right now, the basics out in the woods are um, witch hazel, which has uh, already bloomed, but there may be still some in bloom. Uh, the maples um, should be coming into bloom fairly soon. You'll see the in, on the hillside. You'll see the hills turn kind of a reddish hue, which that, that that's really all the blossoms on the tops of the maple trees uh, actually blooming. Uh, rarely do we get a, a warm day when those uh, bees can get to those blooms, but there is an occasional one, and the, and the bees will actually gain some weight in um, in nectar uh, gathering from the maple blossom. Um, you're also going to get a willow. Uh, certainly the pussy willows will provide a great source of pollen for the honeybees. Uh, there are other ornamentals. Um, Andromeda is a, is a hedge uh, flower that you see a lot in the suburbs. It smells like purple candy. Uh, I always say it, it smells like the old Pez, the purple candy from the Pez dispensers. But the, the blossoms are that, that uh, they're kind of a whitish color, but they produce a nice early source of uh of nectar for the honeybee. Oh, it's it's coming, <laughs> not not far off. Um, yeah, I'm, and there's an old saying that you know if, if if you're not ready for the season, the season will just keep moving. So it's uh, you do have to be prepared and ready, um, whether you're a grower or a beekeeper or an arborist, uh, an orchard grower, um, it, it, and this is the time to be ready and prepare and, and do all your things like like your plumings and and purchasing of items that you're going to need because right now the supply chain is kind of in, in chaos and you may or may not get things that you order through the mail or online uh, in time for when you need it. So yeah, do it now. Beautiful report, Vincent. Um, Steve, can you want to pop in here and uh, maybe uh, dialogue a bit with Vincent and then I'll jump off and get uh, Ron Whitehurst on the line. Well, and I'm, you know, when it starts to get warm like this, uh, or, or like that little stretch we had, and we see some bees moving around, I'm always curious, you know, what we can make possible for them, uh, Vincent. And so, you know, there's a few things around the farm right now, but this this period from, you know, December to March before we get those first dandelions, uh, you know, there's not a ton of resources out there for them. Uh, we've got a mustard greens flowering that we've let go. I had a little bit of a lissom, you know, that stayed really, really deep into the winter, but not a ton of resources. So I'm curious what you see out there and what 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 bees might be able to get after uh, in these, these tougher months. Well, I've seen bees bringing in pollen, oddly enough, in January. Almost every winter month, if the weather cooperates, things will pop open very quickly, and then they'll close up again. So you end up with that small little chickweed, I think it's called. It's sort of a ground cover. Uh, it's a little white kind of 
nondescript flower, but it, I see the bees uh, foraging heavily on that because, first of all, on a, a warm winter day, it's close to the ground where the heat is, and the honeybees can, can make use of that warmth for themselves, but also uh, the flower itself produces a little bit of nectar and the pollen. So those little things um, like chickweed um, are good, you know, and I guess, you know, maybe, you know, people tend to over manicure uh, flower beds and lawns and, and the edges of things. Uh, but this also, the, the, to not manicure it and to not have it bare ground means there's something perhaps beneficial to the insects that we need for pollination and, and uh, other insect control. So those those little things. The only thing I can say is, uh, you know, we, we like to see little little flowers that you might want to get rid of otherwise, uh, you know, during the season. But during during the, or they may compete with what we're trying to grow. But at the same time, they early in the season they provide a beneficial uh, asset for honeybees in particular. Mm-hmm. That's good to know. You know, we have we have quite a bit of chickweed here. You know, both uh, in our tunnels, which is uh, you know more robust than what's outside of the tunnels. But um, you know, we typically pull pull that chickweed out um, and and feed to our chickens. I think that's one of the ways it gets its name. The chickens like to eat it. Yeah. Uh, but I didn't realize that the the bees were after it too. I mean, I, I've certainly seen them there, but I hadn't thought about it that way. So that's that's nice to think of. Um, and I. I I would encourage people, if they can, to grow this alyssum. As it's a really lovely white flower. It's kind of a ground cover. And I, I had never let it go this late in the year, but um, we kept it around our patio, kind of little little border bits, and the bees were all over it, you know, through through the fall. And then it, it stayed through multiple frosts. This low-growing ground cover, it's sort of just as you mentioned, you know, the earth is the is where that warmth is. And so, you know, having that low growing flower seemed to be a nice resource for them. And I was really impressed with how long it stayed uh, available to them over the winter. It's all it's all gone. At this point, it's all browned over. Um, there's not any more flowers, but um, really through at least through January, it was still it was still uh, an, an asset for them, a resource. Gentlemen, yeah. um, thank you so much for great reports and excellent uh you played nicely together. I appreciate that. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. And Thank you, you, Richard. Yeah, absolutely. Vincent, if you uh, want to get back to your duties, I, I will drop you. Otherwise, you can hang out and chat with our insect insectary man who's going to be on in one second. Um, I will probably uh, drop out. I've got a crew that needs to get back to work, so we're uh, finishing up lunch, and on we go to the next bee yard. Excellent, excellent. Okay, thank you so much, Vincent. We'll talk to you again uh, next month. Well, hopefully it'll be dandelion season. Thank you, Richard. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Oh, dear. Uh, I just dropped I just dropped Ron, <laughs> so I'm going to have to call him back. But um, uh, so, Steve, I'm going to ask you to... Um, yeah, sure thing. Do, a, you know, do your dance, uh, song and dance routine for a minute while I get Ron back on the phone. Gladly. Gladly. Well, I'll say, you know, this is a... a you know, fun time of the year where we're doing a lot of planning, and one of the things we're planning for is not just what we grow, but the things we do on the farm, the activities, the events. So if anyone out there is listening and thinking about what programs they might be interested in, uh, maybe you're thinking about the maple syrup. This is We're getting into maple tapping season. We've got uh, a Saturday morning program here. Uh, we're going to do a, you know, a maple tapping demo. People can get in on that, and you know, there will be a few opportunities throughout uh, the spring to do that. Um, we've got a goat hike happening, so you can take a walk through the woods with our goats. Um, 
you know, we've got uh, actually we're going to do some fundraising events too. We've got a comedy night happening to help uh, support our programs here, some of the education programs that we do, some of the food donations that we do. You know, we, we, we look for funding any way we can, and also if we can get together and have a fun time, uh, you know, that, that helps make it possible. So we've got a comedy night coming up um, to help, help cover that. Uh, and then we've got we've got programs, um, explorer programs, where you can come out to the farm uh, for for kids to do you know walking through our woods, fort building, and and just all sorts of exciting stuff uh, out in the woods and in the fields. Um, we've also got camp that we're planning for. So you know I know I've got a two year old and a four year old. I'm thinking about what they're going to be doing in the summer, planning for their summer experiences. Well, we've got a summer camp here on the farm. Uh, registration is open. Um, and we'll have programs here July and August, and I uh, would love to see you and your families and your kids here uh, for our summer camp programs. Um, the number then, you have dialed is not in service. Please check the number. In, uh, in May, one of our first big events is our Celebrate Spring event, So, and that's a day where we do um, we, we have a Maypole. We've had uh, Billy Fisher here over the years doing, doing the music for the Maypole and, and getting that set up, and that's sort of this you know, long-standing tradition of helping uh, this idea of bringing fertility onto the farm. So we have some, some music. We wrap ribbons around the Maypole. We have a plant sale. Who are seedlings or certified organic seedlings? Um, get the things that you want to plant in your garden, like your cucumbers and zucchini, tomatoes, herbs, greens. So we'll have that available, and we'll have workshops throughout the day. And then this incredible thing that we've done over the last few years: we've we've had artists come to the farm and create, uh, bring their uh, fairies and fairy houses that they've uh, built and designed and, and and placed them out throughout the farm. So there's kind of a, a walk and a trail and discovery opportunity. And we had about, uh, you know, 400 people, I think, come through here during the day to experience that. It was really a beautiful spring day um, last year. So we're looking forward to uh, having a, a similar event this year Um Mid-May, I don't have the date in front of me, but um, we'll be advertising that. It's a it's a great time to get out on the farm. It's kind of a nice kickoff for the season. Hello, hello. Uh, Richard, are you still there now? Uh, this is Ron. Ron, glad glad you're here with us. I know Richard was trying to get you on there. I'm glad you've got you're on. Yeah, that's great, Ron. Thank. Th- thank you so much uh, for hanging in there while I uh, failed uh, once again on our <laughs> new phone system. Uh, but, we're, we're all pros at this, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're all pros, but, you know, not really. Anyway, let me just introduce you. So our guest now is Ron Whitehurst. He is a uh, specialist in biological pest control for farmers, gardeners, consultants and uh, practitioners, and he's engaged in, um, uh, engages participants in um, teaching, uh, in workshops, in uh, biological control of uh, insect pests in the field. And you have a, uh, like, I guess, a kind of a pantheon of insect, or what we might call friendly or beneficial insects that you use to um, fend off those insects not desired in a, in a either food-producing or flower-producing environment. Ron, thank you so much for being with us. I mean, I could go on. Your bio is amazing and, and impressive. 
But you're based on, in which city on the West Coast? Ventura, California. It, it's a good place to grow bugs. That's uh-huh. why we're here. Is that right? Well, tell us all yeah. about it. How, like, what's, so, what's the story uh, on how so you got into it? And in the in the vernacular, uh, we grow the good bugs to eat the bad bugs. <clears throat> so mm. if you have some kind of pest, you can think, okay, uh, there should be, you know, five or six different um, uh, predators feeding on it. There should be um, four or five, six uh, parasites feeding on it. There should be. Oh, um, maybe a dozen different uh, pathogens eating it. And so, you know, why is this pest here in in the midst of all of these different things that are trying to um, to eat it? Um, my father-in-law said that um, uh, food drives all these systems. And so uh, all of these uh, pest insects are, are food for something else. And in fact, you know, we're uh, part of a, a food chain also. Uh, we eat um, uh, plants and sometimes animals, and uh, then we're eaten by uh, lions, tigers, tigers, and bears, and, and now the coronavirus. Um, so we're all part of a food system. And so uh, we have um, used all these um, uh, chemical fertilizers and chemical pesticides to to try to push our, our um, uh, food production and um, uh, uh, kill a bunch of uh, different pests. And so we've got a, an extremely disturbed environment. And so our role is figuring out, okay, um, taking a farmer or a gardener where they are, how can we introduce some more life to balance the system? Instead of thinking about um, uh, uh, some kind of poison that will kill the pest, you know, how can you introduce more life to bring the the, the um, ecology into a um, better balance so you get uh, good food, fiber, medicine uh, without using anything toxic? We, we've gotten to the, the incredible uh, situation here where the um, universities and extension are functioning as marketing arms for the pesticide industry. And so we see it, find that we're on a, a steep uphill slope of education, bringing people around to, to thinking, okay, let's, let's look at um, bringing more balance into our ecosystem instead of figuring out, you know, how to kill uh, the next, next invading pest, the next pest that is, you know, taking over, you know, the, the uh, broccoli in my garden or uh, this acre of, of, um, of celery or eggplant or, or whatever it is. So um, we work with the farmers and gardeners to take care of the pest um, that they're facing today but give them uh, some suggestions, some guidance, you know, in how to set up their ecology so that they have fewer and fewer pests in the future, such as your last discussion about the um, uh, chickweed and alyssum, that alyssum is a really great little interplant that you can plant with a, a lot of other um, uh, crop plants, like if you're, you're planting a bunch of um, uh, broccoli, cauliflower, anything in the, the coal family, um, you can plant, you know, maybe one, uh, one alyssum plant per hundred 
of your crop plants and um, uh, provide habitat to draw in the uh, predators and parasites, you know, that feed on the aphids and whitefly and, and the various things that the, um, um, and, oh, and the caterpillars that, that you know, affect the, the cabbage family. That's amazing. So tell us a little bit about how you, um, I don't know, operate in terms of, do you actually um, harvest insects or do you, you import them? Do you buy them from other mm-hmm. pr- providers? or Like, how does that work? Right. So, so just kind of stepping back a bit, um, uh, a lot of the um, the big agricultural paths that they have come into this country came from other uh, countries where they were the, you know, the origin of that uh, crop plant. And so uh, USDA, uh, United States Department of Agriculture, um, that's their role to look for uh, the um, um, the beneficials that eat the, the pest in, in foreign countries and then bring them in and keep them in quarantine and, and um, make sure that they're not going to uh, become a pest, you know, in and of their own right. And so then um, those those insects have been vetted, you know, that, that they're safe to use in, in our, um, you know, for release into the environment. So we, uh, there's a number of um, beneficial insects that, <clears throat> that uh, we sell that are in that category, <clears throat> kind of like reintroducing the um, uh, the beneficial insect in the past, you know, over, you know, uh, hundreds, tens of thousands of miles uh, to re- reunite them. Uh, but a lot of them are, are uh, at one time collected, you know, from the field and then propagated in um, uh, rearing, uh, insect rearing, you know, situations, uh, which are just like any livestock operation, just have millions of uh, heads of uh, livestock, except they've got six legs instead of two or four legs. And uh, rear those up and then send those out. So what happens is is we'll get a call, um, call or email uh, from somebody who says, I've got this problem. And so we'll, um, we'll go through 20 questions you know, um, uh, what's the situation, uh, how much area you're working with and, you know, who's your neighbor and all this sort of thing. <laughs> and then figure out, um, a series, a, a selection of, uh, beneficial insects, maybe some fungal pathogens, maybe some soft pesticides then that would fit into a program to, um, help them control that pest. And so we've got a uh, catalog of about 50 different insects, a dozen different predator mites and um, um, some insect pathogens and then um, some hardware, some insect uh, snail traps and that sort of thing. So we've got basically a a toolkit for doing biological control in a wide range of different situations. Fantastic. Well, we're speaking with... uh Ron Whitehurst, he's the, I guess, the executive director of uh, Rincon Vitova Insectaries, which is based in Ventura, California. And uh, we're learning a lot here about um, what's possible uh, using these natural predators for the pests that we don't want in our gardens. Um, what, what, um, 
What are some of the pesticides? You, you mentioned that sometimes it, you might you might have to resort to uh, some chemical stuff to, to when when the pest situation is you don't right. have you don't have the predator the appropriate predator. Um, can you talk a little yeah. bit about that? I sure. mean, is there a way yeah, sure. to? We're we're not uh, anti-pesticide. Um, uh, there's some really dandy pesticides that we're very familiar with. Uh, soapy water, you know, just mix a little bit oh, of soap and some uh-huh. water. Yeah. Remember, um, cap full of Dr. Bronner's um, uh, peppermint soap and yeah. a, um, a quart of water and spray that on your, your aphids, you know. Um, that's a dandy pesticide. We've got a thousand use of, years of used history with that stuff. Just don't uh, get it in your eyes and don't drink too much of it. <laughs> so it's, it's a very low-risk pesticide. In some situations, um, just plain old water is a dandy pesticide. You mist um, plants with uh, just plain water, and um, you can uh, use that to selectively kill the uh, uh, spider mites. They're feeding on the plant. That um, uh, they uh, the the plant feeding mites can only tolerate uh, being immersed in water for about 50 seconds, hmm. where the predator mites can be immersed in water for about a half an hour uh, before they have troubles. So just plain water is a a dandy insecticide. And then um, been looking more at uh, compost teas and uh, compost extracts and things like that. Mm -hmm. And those have uh, insect uh, pathogens in them, uh, as well as the nutrients and and, uh, beneficial microbes that will cover the, the, um, uh, the leaf surface to provide a protective layer against uh, plant diseases. And um, uh, so just, you know, spraying compost tea uh, will give you both um, uh, good nutrition and uh, set the stage for uh, good pest control also. And then there's a number of, of insect pathogens, these um, uh, fungi that uh, don't hurt uh, people, uh, but make insects sick. And so there's um, Bavaria bassiana, Medrisium, Mesopliae, Polyseomyces, now called Isaria. Um, these different uh, genera of, um, of fungi that are very low risk for people, uh, but are really dandy for, for killing insects. And um, uh, you can also grow those on uh, cooked rice so that it, it can be a, a, a basis for a, a really great uh, DIY, you know, home uh, homebrew uh, pest control. Beautiful. Well, we're, again, once again, this is Ron White, Whitehurst we're hearing from. He's based in Ventura, mm-hmm. California. We also have mm-hmm. Steve Mono from Asara Farm on the line. Um, we're down to uh, three and a half minutes <laughs> for uh, t- before our show ends. But, Steve, do you have any, any comments or questions? Yeah, well, Ron, while we've got you, I'd love to, uh, you know, ask for a little advice or info if you've got on, um, you know, what insects, if any, might be effective on some of my least favorite pests, which would be the um, the flea beetles, particularly the, the brassica flea beetle that makes the little little holes, you know, it, it'll bite and feed into the leaves of our leafy mm-hmm. greens like arugula or into our kale or our cabbages. And, you know, organically, there's not great solutions besides, you know, um, physical prevention, you know, 
using our row covers and such, but I haven't found a, an insect that might be helpful, and I'm curious if, from your end if, if, if you have any experience with something that's been effective on, on those, those flea beetles. Well, it's not quite an insect, but they're classified with insects, and that's the, uh, the insect-eating nematodes. And um, so the, for the flea beetles, they're a uh, beetle uh, larvae, and so the um, uh, heteroditis bacteriophora, or HB nematodes for short, um, are really dandy for uh, just spraying uh, over the plants or right along uh, in a strip along the um, plant row. And um, the uh, larvae of the flea weevil uh, feeds on the roots of the plants, and so the nematodes live in the soil, and um, uh, they will... Uh, uh, be feeding on the larva of the flea beetle, and then the adult flea beetles will often hide in the soil in the duff layer underneath the plants uh, during the daytime so that um, uh, you can decrease both the larvae and the, the adult you know, pretty effectively. And then as far as insecticides, uh, diatomaceous earth dusted onto the leaves you know, can be, a, a, you know, kind of um, rounding out, you know, like a, a beneficial and uh, a pesticide. Right, right. We do use, so that's something, you know, a lot of folks listening might not know that there are organic pesticides. There are things that we use here on the farm, as you mentioned, with Dr. Bronner's. That's one of our top uh, things that we use to discourage and, and to, to kill off some of the bugs. Uh, we do use that diatomaceous earth, and, and we also use surround, or kale and clay. It's a mixture. So these are all things that feel, you know, safe for us to use, but and they don't stay in the environment so long. That's one of the big differences. Right. Gentlemen, we are... Gentlemen, we are down to our last 60 seconds together. I want to thank Steve Munno from Masaro Farm for heading up our show, as he does each each time we're here. We'll be back in two weeks. And Ron Whitehurst, a fantastic discovery we've made here. And uh, we're going to have you ha- have to have you back, Ron, because it seems like we just barely scratched the surface on your story. Indeed, looking forward to it. And yeah. you can look at our website, rinconvitova.com. That's R-I-N-C-O-N. Uh, V-I-T-O-V-A.com. Beautiful. Great to I, yes. talk with you today. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us. And Steve, we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thanks, Richard. Bye-bye. Enjoy. This is the Gaia-Gram, environmental headlines from around a planet in crisis. Last week, Storm Eunice tore down rooftops and trees, crushed cars, and sent planes skidding on London's runways as millions of people across the United Kingdom and Ireland hunkered down at home to stay out of hurricane-strength winds. The storm led to 10 fatalities across the UK, with wind speeds as high as 122 miles per hour, the fastest on record in the country. As reported in the Washington Post, a pair of whistleblower complaints filed with the Securities and Exchange Commission this past month allege Facebook misled investors about its efforts to combat climate change and COVID-19 misinformation. One complaint alleges that climate change misinformation was prominently available on Facebook and that the company lacked a clear policy on the issue as recently as last year, despite Facebook executives committing to fight the global crisis during earnings calls. Facebook whistleblower